1: I turned around and there was a young man there sitting about two feet away from me, pointing a a shotgun at me. The Profile.
2: You're
3: listening to Premier Christian Radio.
2: Where faith comes to life.
3: Hello and welcome to The Profile. Here on Premier Christian Radio, I'm Rachel Matthews. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and their ministry. It is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. To request a free sample copy of the latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com Forward slash free sample. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Taylor Schumann. Taylor is a survivor of a shooting in her college back in April 2013 in Christiansburg, Virginia, in the United States of America. With over 100 people dying from gun violence every day in the U.S., Taylor is forever grateful to God and is now a passionate advocate for gun control. Within our conversation, Taylor describes what happens to her on that day with descriptions of gun violence, which some listeners may find upsetting. Taylor began by casting her mind back to that time and sharing with me how life was for her back then.
1: Back in 2013, in the spring, my husband, now, we were engaged then. And so we were um, planning our wedding and planning a move um, to a new state. And I was working for a community college, helping out with their distance education program and their services for students who had disabilities. And yeah, I was just spending my days going to work and then planning a wedding and seeing friends and kind of doing all the things you do when you're you know, young and fresh out of college, um and my husband was was working just up the road from where I was, and yeah, everything was pretty, pretty normal and and nice, <laughs> yeah, and was faith important to you
3: as a part of your life then?
1: It was. I had grown up always in church, and my relationship with god was was always really important to me, and I would say that. You know, although I had experienced some some hard things in life, overall, like, my life had been pretty easy, and so my relationship with God was sort of that he was a God um, in good times, and, um, you know, I hadn't had much experience believing in God and talking to God through something really horrible and something really traumatic. Which...
3: Sadly is exactly what happened, isn't it, in 2013 when you were a social worker in a in a school in Virginia. Do you want to tell us about what you remember from that day and what happened?
1: Yeah, I was I was at work that day and um, my co-worker and I were getting ready to take our breaks. We each got a 15-minute break and we decided she'd go first that day, and she went out to her car to eat. And um I I was sitting there and with my boss and another guy that was there helping us out with our computers. And I looked up in the middle of our conversation and my boss kind of stood up and her face had just gone white and she started screaming. And I turned around and there was a young man there sitting about two feet away from me, pointing a, a shotgun at me. And he had tried to shoot me from behind, but he was unable to get the safety off of the gun. And as my boss ran away, he ran after her. And that gave me time to kind of run back into a supply closet behind my desk. And as I shut the door, he fired through the door and the bullet went through the door and then through my hand and, and kind of sent, um, parts of that wood door flying. And so I had some shrapnel in my chest and my eye, I couldn't see out of one of my eyes for, for a while. And, yeah, I I couldn't lock the door because my keys were at my desk and the door locked from the outside, not from the inside. And I just felt really helpless and I could kind of hear the gun going off around the school. And that was maybe one of the scariest parts was that I was alone and I couldn't see anything. You know, I could only hear, hear what was happening. And I was in there for about five minutes, although it felt like much longer. I was sort of stunned to find out later that it had only been five minutes. And he came back at one point and tried to fire through the door again. And, um, the bullet missed me, um, just a couple inches. And there was one other girl, a student that was wounded. And she also survived, thankfully. Um, and yeah, I, uh, off-duty security guard heard about it on the police scanner and he actually drove to, the sc- drove to the school with his wife. They were out celebrating their anniversary that day and and they just drove over and he came inside and he was unarmed and he was able to get the shooter to surrender his gun and then he called out and um, I knew that there was help there and, and they helped me get outside and, and that was kind of the beginning of the rest of the story. Thank you so much for for sharing
3: with us because I can imagine that is not easy to remember. It must be a story that you've told. I know you've written about it, but to retell it, to revisit it, it must trigger some of those emotions. Can you remember how you were pressing into God during that time of sheltering?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it was one of those things where I realized as soon as it started happening that you know, oh, this is happening to me. I'm one of these people now. This will never have not happened to me. And I was, you know, I knew, uh, I should pray (laughs) and, um, I couldn't, I had no words. I had no words in me. I was so afraid I couldn't form any thoughts. And I, you know, that the scripture popped into my mind that when we don't know what to pray, you know, the spirit intercedes, intercedes for us. And I felt like I was just experiencing that. I just knew God was with me. And even though I I couldn't form any real prayers that, you know, the spirit was interceding on my behalf. And at one point I, I really thought I was going to die. I was losing a lot of blood and I didn't know if anyone had called for help. And I just, I didn't know how much time I had. And I was thinking of and my fiance, my family, and never getting to do all the things that we'd wanted to do and having to leave them. And it it was like so physically painful, the emotional part. And I just prayed to God, you oh, know, if today is my day, if you're going to take me, please just take me quickly. This is just too terrible. Please just take me, take me. And I heard so clearly God speak to me in that moment that, it wasn't my time. There was more for me to do. And from that moment, it kind of gave me a little uh, resolve to, to try to think clearly and try to figure out what I could do to, to be safer. And I, I kind of got up and um, I tried to stop the bleeding with my hand. And then I tried to kind of find a better place to hide. And it was about that moment that he shot through the door that second time. And, you know, I, I really believe that it was God kind of giving me the strength to move away from, from where I was to, to spare me that that bullet. And, um, you know, in the days following, I, I look back and I have never felt as close to God as I did that day and in the days after. Um, and so that part of the story is, is so tender to remember, um, you know, even though those memories are really hard to think about I still remember like how close God was to me and and how um, that closeness that I felt to him and that was sweet
3: and what happened as you were rescued how did you begin to rebuild your life and your confidence again because everything as you said everything must have shattered in that moment you had become a a statistic you had become like safety didn't have the same feeling about it did it feeling safe anyway how did you
1: rebuild your life well thankfully I have a really supportive family um, and friends and my mom reached out to a friend and they found a good counselor for me to go see and I really didn't want to go I I didn't think I could talk about it yet I I really didn't see how I could do it. And I was really afraid to go. And, and to my mom's credit and my fiance, they just kind of put me in the car and they're like, we're going to, we're going to go like to the counselor and you don't have to talk if you don't want to like, but let's just try to go. I was like, okay. Um, And my counselor's name was Martha and she um, was a believer and a very qualified counselor. And she helped me kind of become a person again, and become Taylor again, and she really helped heal my heart. And we talked a lot about God and life, and how things were different for me and what they could look like. And she was a safe space for me to kind of share the things that I didn't feel like I could share with my family or my friends. Um, I just needed, you know, someone that I wasn't going to worry or upset with with what I needed to say. And yeah, she kind of helped me find my way back into the world. And I also began to see a, um, a clinical psychologist that specialized in um, post-traumatic um, stress and had experience with other shooting survivors. Um, and he really helped me kind of understand the science of trauma and, and what my body had gone through and, and how that would affect me. And, and that helped me understand myself and understand some of those triggers and what I could do and, um, ways to kind of minimize, minimize the symptoms of PTSD in my life. And, you know, obviously prayer and God was a huge part of that helping me, um, start to feel safe in places again. Um, but yeah, it was, it was quite disorienting to go from one day feeling very safe wherever I went for the most part to all of a sudden, nowhere was safe. You know, I didn't even want to leave the hospital there when they told me it was time to be discharged from the hospital to go home. I was really afraid because I was safe in the hospital and there were, um, you know, police there and, um, you know, going back out into the world seemed really scary. And was the
3: lasting damage to your hands where it had been shot? How did you recover physically?
1: Yeah, I was in um physical therapy for about 1 year and I had four surgeries to help me regain some mobility and I had to work really hard. You know, I went to those appointments about 3 times a week and it was really painful and really exhausting and you know, many days I did not want to go. But I had people to encourage me and to push me and I knew that if I wanted to regain some use of my hand. I had to put in the work and I had to go through that pain. And that was really hard too because you know, I'm you get angry that someone else made this choice to harm you and then you're the one continually having to kind of put yourself in in pain to just get back a fraction of what you had. And so there was a lot of um, I think anyone who deals with an injury or, or chronic pain, there's such a large mental component. And so for me, those two things really played hand in hand because, you know, if I was having a good day mentally and then my hand was hurting, you know, that's a constant reminder of, oh, remember what happened to you? Like, so it's, it's kind of hard to work through those things, but um, thankfully I was able to regain about 20% use of my hand, which is, only 20%, but it's a lot more than we thought in the beginning I would get back. And, um, so some things are still really hard to do, but I've been able to kind of figure out ways to, to do things and and to function and, um, yeah.
3: And if I may ask, what has your journey of forgiveness been like for the person who did hurt you in this way? How hard has that been to forgive him?
1: Yeah, I think for a long time, it was very much a daily act, um, you know, a, a having to forgive constantly <laughs> in a way. Um, and for a while there, I I could hardly think of it um, because it was so painful trying to figure out how I could... Uh, offer forgiveness to someone who'd done something terrible. And God was really gracious to help me understand that, you know, the idea of forgiveness, it wasn't taking away consequences. Um, It wasn't me saying, oh, I forgive him. And he shouldn't have to, you know, pay for what he did or experience a consequence. The forgiveness was really for me um, to be free from anger and bitterness and resentment. And, and God really helped me see the person that did this to me as a human being, as someone that God loved, um, as someone made in the image of God and who experienced a different life than I did and, um, had pain and had um mental health issues and you know whatever you want to want to say about it but once i began to see him as as a human and not sort of an evil villain uh it was much easier for me to offer forgiveness that um i would i would want to receive but yeah i think in some days you know i i might feel pain i might have a hard day and i get angry all over again and um so i think it's okay for forgiveness to be sort of a continual journey in one's life um, because I, I certainly experience that still.
3: And so tell me about your life now as we kind of move forward what what's your kind of heart and your mission now because and tell me about kind of the gun laws in America because in the UK it's very very different tell me about what you experience there.
1: Yeah. So guns are much more prevalent, much more available here than they are there. They're um, easier to get um, than they are there. We have a national background check system that um, since its start, it has stopped um, over 4 million gun sales to people who shouldn't have them. Um, But there are a lot of sort of glaring loopholes in our system that make it easier for people who shouldn't have guns to get them. Um, And beyond sort of the availability of guns here, the culture is really what drives um, sort of gun possession and gun culture. We, you know, here in America, we have the second amendment, which gives people the right to to bear arms and people take that really seriously. And they believe it was a God-given right that they should have access to um, the weapons that they want, whether it's for self-defense or collecting or a hunting hobby, whatever it is. And so when we talk here about um, gun reform, enacting new laws, new regulations, largely the battle is the people who want no laws or no regulation. And of course, here we have the National Rifle Association as well, um, which is a massive lobbying organization that spends millions of dollars to get our political leaders elected and so even when we have a nation of people who, um, upwards of 90% support stronger gun laws, um, it's really hard to get those laws passed because there's a lot of money involved in, in politics here. Um, and so in America, we have, you know, 40,000 people that die every year, um, from gun violence. It's about hundred people a day, over 200 people are injured, 22 kids a day, um, and you know we we have the highest rates of gun violence of any developed country in the world. Um, and so, yeah, largely what what we're battling here is, is sort of that culture and and trying to figure out how to find common ground um and figure out how we can make our country safer. and what what's the battle
3: that God has given you to fight what do, what are you hoping to achieve in sharing your story in the way that you are?
1: I think that when I when I first started sharing my story and sort of wading into the waters of talking about gun reform, what I realized was that although it's really prevalent here in America, most people don't know someone personally who has been shot or has lost someone to gun violence. And so when I started talking about my story, people are saying, I had no idea. I didn't know. This is so terrible. What happened to you? And from that point on, I was able to say, "Yes, this is horrible, and this is happening to a lot of people. And here's the problems with our laws. Here's what we could do better." And so, a personal story really gives an access point to something you yourself haven't experienced. Just like for me, it does with, um, you know, racism or immigrants. You know, things that I cannot personally experience in that same way. And so. You know, my my first priority is, is to share my story and offer sort of a window into to what this is like. And from then moving into, you know, teaching about uh, what we can do. And and largely I I talk to Christians, people of faith. And I think my biggest priority there is sort of asking people to consider whether they are considering their identity as um, an American first, or if they're considering their identity as a a follower of God first, because we have different responsibilities um, and and different goals, depending on, on how we prioritize those roles. If, If we're considering ourselves as American first, any right given to us as an American will take precedent over maybe our obligation as, as Christians to, love our neighbor and to consider their needs greater than our own, um, and, and to be uncomfortable for the sake of, of giving someone else comfort. And so if I can ask people to really thoughtfully consider that, um, and, and their opinions about guns, gun regulations, that to me is really what I hope to do, um, through my book and my work. And how has your relationship with God changed since 2013? Um, yeah, I think, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned that for so long, like, the God I believed and knew was a God of of good times. And I hadn't really had to rely on him for um, life. And um, he never had to be, like, the only thing Um that I, I had. And and when I was shot, that changed. And I had to start getting to know, you know, the God who is near to the brokenhearted and binds up our wounds and is with us in our physical suffering. And when we feel like our our body is failing us or betraying us. And God really helped me see my experience as a way to connect with other people who are marginalized and are hurting and see him as a God over suffering and that even in suffering, he is so good. Um, And one of the greatest lessons I, I really had to learn is that I, you know, I'm someone who doesn't like to ask for help. I do not like to be an inconvenience to people or feel like a burden. And after this happened, not only did I have to ask other people for help, but I had to ask the Lord for help. And he was so kind to show me that I'm not a burden to him. I'm not inconveniencing him with my needs or my prayers, um, that he loves to be with me and loves to take care of me. Um, and that has been life-changing for me in my walk with God and then how I, love other people and how I, you know, hope to help other people too.
3: And you're a mom now. So tell me, how Mm -hmm. does it feel thinking about your own children going to school? Does that bring up some fears for you or have you been able to put them to rest at the foot of the cross? Have
1: you given those fears to God fully now? I think it's, um, it can be a daily act a surrender. My son is two and a half, so he's not quite in um, school yet. But he does go to um, a church nearby for a few hours of childcare a couple of days a week. Um, and when I first started taking him, I it was a little easier because it was a church. It didn't feel like school. But you know, some days I'll drop him off, and then maybe I hear sirens somewhere in the city, and it sort of reminds me that. I am not in control <laughs> over this. Um, I think that it will continue to be like that for me, and and God will meet me there and give us comfort. Um, you know, it's a it's a hard thing with my husband too, because he was in uh, school for a lot of the time the first few years of our marriage, and he now works um, in a hospital, and you know, sometimes in dangerous situations. And so for a long time, I was terrified when he would walk out the door to go to school or to work. Um, and so I've really had to learn to rely on God that he is, um, you know, the giver of our safety and that even when the worst things happen, he is still there. Um, but you know, it also drives me to do what I do. You know, I, I have this little boy who right now his world is perfect and not scary. And he doesn't know, um, you know, about the awful things that have happened to his mom, um, and to the people around him. And I, you know, I, I sort of have this image in my mind of, you know, years from now, you know, where he's saying to me, mom, why hasn't anyone done anything about gun violence here? And I just do not want that to ever happen. I never want to have to look him in the eye and say, well, we just thought it was too hard, (laughs) Or, you know, it was just a lost cause. Um, You know, I I want his world to be better. I want the world to be better for his kids um, and all the other kids around us. Someone has to be the adult and we need to do what we can to make the world better for our kids. And yeah, that's why I do it. That was Taylor Schumann speaking to
3: me. Rachel Matthews here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. These days, you can't get a lot for your pound. You could get a pack of balloons, a DIY face mask, or some plasters. Ouch. Or one pound could get you great reporting, brilliant interviews and loads of Christian news articles, all in Premier Christianity, in print, online and on the app. For just £1 a month in the summer sale limited offer. Get yours at premierchristianity.com The Profile You're
0: listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to the second part of today's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley. And my guest for this section of the programme is Mark Vernon. Uh, He's going to tell us about who he is, but he is currently the author of a very recent book, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey. It's 700 years uh, since Dante died, and we're going to be finding out from Mark who he was, what impact uh, his writings had and what it can say to us today, 700 years later. Mark, welcome along. Great. Great to have you with me.
2: Thank you. It's nice to talk about these things
0: yeah absolutely now consider me an uninitiated philistine all right when it comes to dante uh so you're very much starting from the beginning um tell us um first of all who dante was um what you know his body of work was about and particularly uh the impact that the divine comedy has had culturally and historically
2: so he lives as you say, um, 700 years ago, in the 13th century, dying then. And, I mean, one way of thinking about why that is significant is because it's sometimes called the first industrial revolution now. He lived at the time when things like mercantilism, trading, was beginning to take a form that matters to us now. So the precursors to capitalism, society was changing. Um, In terms of um, how human beings think about themselves, you might say, it's the earliest days of the Renaissance. So, for example, he's a friend of Giotto, and Giotto paints these human figures that have an inner life that feels a bit like our inner life when we look at them. So he comes at this really seminal moment in terms of the emergence of what we now call modernity, and writes this great epic, The Divine Comedy, in the last part of his life when he himself was in exile Um, The Italian Peninsula was a whole series of city-states, often at war with each other. And Florence, his hometown, fell into civil war around the 1300s. And that led to him being sent into exile. It seemed like a complete disaster for his life. He was already well known, both as a poet and as a politician. But it's out of this catastrophe that over the next 20 or so years, before he dies in 1321... The divine comedy is born and hence the famous opening line midway through the journey of our life. He actually says our life. He wants to draw us straight in. He wakes up and finds himself in a dark wood. And that launches what's not just the kind of midlife crisis and how he recovers, but a complete transformation of his perception of himself, his times and and God. So give
0: us a sense of what the book actually is for those who have not read it, as I'm sure many listeners won't have, have had a chance to read it. Um, what, what, what actually is the, the, the story that, that gets woven in The Divine Comedy?
2: It is, it is one of these books which everyone's heard of. And you've, you've undoubtedly come across references to it, too, um, particularly the first part, The Inferno. He journeys um, through hell right down to the floor of hell stands right in front of lucifer and then begins to find a way out first of all through mount purgatory which is a process of change where his sight and perception expands and then into paradise where ultimately he he stands before god face to face um and so it's this journey right across the cosmos um as particularly the medieval um, imagination understood it um but He's very much writing, I think, for the future, for our times as well. And he senses that the modern period, He's he, it's not just anachronistic to talk about modernity, because he actually is the first person to use the word modern. And so he's sensing times are changing and feels that we need to re- establish how we connect to divine reality if things aren't to go very very wrong so it's not just his personal crisis but um the crisis of his times and I think still ours which is why it still speaks to people now but it is quite a labyrinth um I mean my book in a way is to try and say look if you want to get into this thing that you've heard of and you maybe even have heard that it's It's one of the, I'd put it in the top three bits Mm. of genius Western Christian literature, you know, after the Bible, as it were. Um, So if you're serious about Christianity, for some, it felt like this to me, you know, it's kind of like a bit of a mountain that I've got to try and climb. Um, And I hope my book helps people find a way into it. But it's it's so important because it's not just, um, you know, of interest. Um, It really does change you when you embark and engage with it which is another reason why it's difficult it's not just complicated because there's lots of characters in it and so on it's difficult because it's asking you to change if you're going to try and keep up with what's being conveyed um you know it's it's one of these works which you could say is inspired in that sense it channels so much more than itself so
0: would would the average reader be able to sort of literally pick it up and and sort of understand it? Or is it the kind of thing where you really do need a guidebook really to, to understand what someone from 700 years ago is, is trying to convey through this specific type of literature?
2: I think it does help to have a guide. I mean, you know, Dante famously himself has a guide. He's met by Virgil in the Dark Wood and then eventually is met by Beatrice as they go into paradise. So um, there's no shame in having a guide um and um i mean it's very much part of grace actually to have a guide you know th- these things are always uh, meaningful um any good modern translation i mean if people want a really a specific um recommendation i recommend the one that's in the penguin classics in english translated by mark muser and it has a, um, a good number of notes so that you can as well read a section and then look at the notes and he explains any characters mm. gives you some sense of what's going on and then you can start to let the text speak to you more and yeah. more yeah, yeah. so I, I do pick up some sort of guide and,
0: and and before we come to your own guide which obviously i wanted to talk about um this particular book you've written a guide for the spiritual journey um how would you say what dante has written has sort of made sense of your own journey because i know you've been on a significant kind of trajectory different things you've you've you know um you've had your own sort of crises of faith in the past um you've described yourself as an agnostic at various points mark and then sort of come back to something which you think does connect you with the fundamental kind of truth of christianity and so on to to what extent has dante been part of that journey that you've gone on yourself
2: very much part of it um i you know a bit like perhaps many people i've kind of wanted to read it try to read it half read it um, but then it was it was actually the thing that really brought it to life for me um, in that mix of my own particular journeys you described was my own psychotherapy actually I went into psychotherapy to try to understand more about what was more frightening me and you know perhaps blocking life for me and so on and I then began to understand how the descent um, which Dante literally undertakes into these dark infernal regions through the famous circles of hell um, is about encountering well your own darkness, too, and how that can become very preoccupying and can keep you stuck and quite literally blocks out sight of wider reality. Um, but by I mean, you know, a Christian idiom here would be something like taking up your own cross, um, you know there's a strange wonderful thing but thing you you feel very cautious about saying too because it's a serious undertaking that our suffering actually is often the way that we find the path to light um it's not that you kind of sidestep it or it just dissolves or it goes away following the way of the cross um going on the descent is the precursor to the ascent um and so he gave me kind of courage if you like that this darkness that I felt I was facing this confusion wasn't um all a sort of big mistake um, that somehow I had to get over um but didn't know how it was actually the path it was actually the route and then seeing how he conveys it helped me to work out what that might mean for me now so it was very much part of the kind of the turnaround for me over time you know this all takes a bit of time but um, it was very much part of that turnaround for me Hmm. So
0: coming to 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 you this this guide that you've written for the book. Um. Well, yeah. Has it been a long time in the making? Did Did you sort of? Uh, and obviously, I suppose it, intentionally, you were wanting to bring it out in time for this special anniversary as well.
2: Yeah. It, it it sort of evolved. So I started off. Um. I wanted to read the book again. It's one of these books you read many times when you got into it, and I thought this time I'll do some podcasts on it um and so I started doing that through the lockdown actually the early parts of the lockdown and then you know they had a bit of traction and then someone said to me you know surely this is a book in the making and so eventually it became a book um each canto there's a hundred cantos across the three parts of the poem and so each canto has a chapter that's both a a narrative retelling of what's going on but also explanation and my interpretation because I've wanted also to focus very much on the spiritual transformation. It felt to me quite likely that the 700th anniversary was going to be celebrated in terms of Dante as a historical figure, a literary figure, um, but perhaps not as a religious figure. And yet he tells us many times that he felt charged by heaven to guide people in the way that he had gone. Um, so I didn't want me to, to, to feel like the 700th anniversary was going to pass and that the religious element was going to be kind of written out. Mm. The Christian mm. element was going to be written out. So my book very much focuses on that and what's going on there. And, and so, who
0: who is the kind of person who might benefit, you think, from picking up this book, whether or not they've heard of Dante or read the Divine Comedy? Um, where do you expect this to be someone who perhaps is feeling like a kind of disconnect with the world, with God, not sure where they find their place in it? That that you believe. The Divine Comedy could be a help in them guide, guiding that kind of a person.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's a book that um, takes you into the subtleties of life and shows you how that that's where the limitless lies. Um, you can, as it were, go through life almost as if it's a kind of flat land. Um, and it can be you know pleasant enough, has its ups and downs. Um, but you know, maybe every so often you wonder what an artist sees that perhaps you don't feel really you quite see. Or, you know, conversely, um, in more religious um writing, I don't know, you might read someone like William Blake saying that when he looks at the sun, he just doesn't, doesn't just see a guinea um shining in the sky like a coin. Um, he sees the heavenly hosts crying holy, holy, holy. And you think, well, what are they on about? Um and um Dante's book, I think opens up reality in that way um, you know it, it's it's in poetry um and so metaphor and image um his he he sparks your own desire he makes you want more from life and that is what leads to you being open to receiving more um so it's certainly for the christian who wants to take their life um in more expansive directions and um, but i think because his focus is so much on perception It's about anyone also, too, who wants to know more about the inside of the whole world, Mm. um, not just their own inside, too. Um, And so, you know, it's it's why it's inspired all sorts of people, actually, whether they're religious or not. And they feel it saying there's more, there's more, there's more. And here's how to find out about that.
0: Your your own book, obviously, is split into the three parts that, that mirror Dante's journey. The Inferno, firstly the purgatorio and the paradiso just give us a, an explanation of what these three stages are and and what lessons you know you've tr- tried to draw out for the reader of of your own guide to the divine comedy
2: yeah so he takes this threefold understanding of reality as was widespread in the medieval world um, in the islamic world as well as christian actually it's quite likely that he's quite inspired by muslim traditions too um, but it's not in any sense a literal um, account of the afterlife. Um, you very quickly, you realise that um, he's taking you into, you might even say nowadays, states of mind as much as parts of reality. And, but you also start to realise that those two things are much closer than you, presume you previously thought, perhaps. And so that as your mind itself changes, so more of reality opens up to you. And broadly speaking, in the inferno, um, he meets individuals who have got stuck in life um, they 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 often feel they've been condemned by a judging God, but Dante increasingly realizes that they've got stuck in the past, and so their lives are kind of on repeat they 've done things that they feel vengeful about or shamed about or and they can't break free of them and that keeps them sort of stuck in these hellish states of mind and you know that that spoke very powerfully to me as a psychotherapist again because i knew myself and i certainly have worked with people that can feel completely stuck um like life can't change um when he gets into purgatory again using the um old christian understanding of a place where we change so we become more and more capable of divine life um he he realizes that he's been purged not of his bad stuff not of his sin but of that which blocks him and so it's the place where change starts to really happen for him and um whilst there's suffering in purgatory because you have to look at yourself primarily um it's a place of hope too there's always the sun is or the stars are always in the sky so you're always being led forward you know it's worth undertaking this difficult journey Um, And then in the paradise, um, in a way, the problems cease. Um, He knows he's got what it takes and he's receiving from God what's needed. But there's still a whole expanse to discover. And so the journey doesn't stop there. It's one of the lovely things, actually. It's not like you've arrived. Um, It's like, okay, you know, now you're going to see the beauty of God. The question is how? And that then becomes the journey itself.
0: Now as you can probably tell I I haven't read the divine comedy um but I have read CS Lewis's The Great Divorce and and just your description there it sounds like you know Lewis for one would have borrowed a great deal from the imagery and the way in the Great Divorce he he imagines this kind of scenario of people going to a kind of limbo state or heavenly place and and ha- sort of meeting people along the way who have got stuck as you described and 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 how they can you know, and the things that limit them from accessing the divine life and so on. So I imagine in that sense, Dante has inspired countless, probably people in terms of, you know, other sorts of progress journeys, whether it be Pilgrim's Progress or or, or the Great Divorce or whatever. Could, could you speak to some of those examples?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's direct. You know, C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest scholars of medieval, English medieval literature in the 20th century um, and was... Um, a scholar and studied Dante too um, as part of that Um, and he undoubtedly deeply inspired him to try and write um, about the afterlife in these kind of narrative ways because the point is if you try and do it literally it just kind of becomes clunky Um, because in a way entering the afterlife is about your transformation um, and so it has to act on you. you. You have to react to it. And so books like The Great Divorce are very much trying to do that. Um, and you know, you know, if you read it, um, you know you've been reading a fiction, and yet you feel something has expanded tremendously inside you as a result of reading it. And Lewis was right onto that. Um, I mean, the, the perhaps the best known example of him writing in parallel to the Divine Comedy now um, since the work of Michael Ward in his book Planet Narnia has been how the seven books of the Narnia stories match um, the parts of the paradise in the Divine Comedy. Mm. Dante enters through various sort of parts of heaven if you like and each part has a certain kind of quality and as he becomes more familiar with that quality so the heavens open up that bit more And um, the case has been made that Dante was wanting in the Narnia stories for us to get a different feel for parts of life in the different stories so that our sense of reality opens up as well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Lewis very much bought into Dante's argument that the modern world was in a kind of spiritual crisis and that we needed to use all the powers of our imagination as well as analysis to try and reconnect us to this crucial fundamental aspect of reality
0: as you say that they're both in that sense trying to kind of engage with the reality that in a sense you have to describe in analogies and pictures and 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 metaphorical language in that way yet at the same time very often when I've run into people talking about Dante they, they speak as though oh he's the one who mapped out the seven circles of hell or whatever you know as though it's he was giving some very physical specific reality to the afterlife so have we just misunderstood that is that just a kind of um uh common uh you know misunderstanding of of Dante and what he was doing
2: I think he certainly begins where he imagined a lot of his readers would be at and so the inferno looks a bit like hell 101 to start with um but he's just sort of trying to connect with you where you might be at and immediately starts to unravel these assumptions and not to just to undermine what you think, but because, you know, as with all sorts of religious truths and religious texts, um, there is a kind of surface reading, which you need to kind of get to get going, but then you read it again and something else opens up and you read it again and something else opens up. And before you know what's happened, you're seeing subtleties, which were just um, not available to you before. Um, And so the old literal readings you sort of give thanks to them because they got you going, um, but you realise there's so much more than just that. I mean, he's quite explicit about this. I mean, he, one of his other um, bits of writing that survives was a letter to one of his patrons, and he explains quite um, straightforwardly that, look, there's a literal reading of this, but don't stop there. Um, mm-hmm. There's allegory, a sort of moral take on things, um, but then there's what he calls a tropological stage, which, where you, when you're really wrestling with what's going on here, what's this really about? Um, it it feels as bewildering as it does inviting. Mm -hmm. And then you get to what he calls the anagogic, which is a perspective more from the divine point of view. And so you feel your own sight aligning um, amazingly. You know, again, it's one of these things you hardly dare say, but with the divine sight. Um, Mm -hmm. But he's quite clear that's what he's inviting us. That's what he thinks the Christian journey is about. Um, This is not just about um, securing a place in the afterlife. This is about sharing divine life um here and hereafter. Yeah. And and how was it received
0: at the time? Did did people appreciate it? Was he considered a bit, you know, out there? What what was the reception?
2: It was wildly successful, actually, right from the word go. Um, it's one of those bits of medieval literature for which um I think even hundreds of manuscripts from the earliest days survive. So scholars now you know conclude that it was copied many many times It circulated very widely um, there were calls for public readings of it from pretty early on as well and there were some um church figures that reacted nervously to it and um, you know even one or two tried to get it banned um he's famously um uh, you know hugely critical of the church and remember he lives at the time as well of um the franciscan movements and the begin movements these kind of grassroots um, uprisings within medieval Christendom, um, which the official church felt very uneasy about, um, and, you know, for very good reason. Um, so he's part of that um, upswelling of, of popular Christianity. I mean, he writes in Italian, you know, rather mm. than Latin, mm. the vernacular precisely in, um, to reach more and more people. Um, again, part of that movement where, you know, the Bible starts getting translated into the vernacular as well. Um, so he, he, he very definitely wanted it yeah. to um, reach all sorts of people. And, you know, part of the reason why he uses imagery is so that it sticks in your mind um, and you can return to it and get more and more out of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, we live in a day today where obviously the enlightenment and the sort of the, the progress of science, the success of science really has has caused a lot of people to kind of simply approach the world in naturalistic terms and and say, you know, this is what we have. And, you know, as long as we can control our chemistry and biology, you know, we'll make the best of life and so on. But that still seems to leave a lot of people cold. They feel like, no, there's more that that's sort of dealing with a sort of shallow level at which life is lived. Um, And and so you've got the rise of, you know, even in the secular circles, I think a lot of people asking spiritual questions again um you know goes without saying people like jordan peterson and so on who've who've you know been at the forefront of this but but many others and i come across them all the time people who aren't satisfied i suppose with just jumping wholesale into a kind of specific religious worldview but they're unhappy with the secular worldview at the same time i mean do you feel like dante is a maybe a a bridge for someone like that who's at that kind of a, a point in their life
2: I, I hope so. I mean, I really do. And maybe what it does is it makes you realize that, that knowledge um, and truth um, isn't just objective, as if it can be sort of written on a page in a scientific or quasi scientific way and made to kind of stack up. Um, but actually, we know something's true when it resonates with us, when we participate in our hearts as much as in our minds, with its truth. Um, and so that's why imagination, it's why story, um, it's why experience. Um, is actually the primary source of truth. And Dante puts that absolutely in front of you and says, look, I did the same when I woke up in this dark wood, I thought my life was in a complete mess, and it was. Um, and yet it led me all this way. Um, so I think that people like Peterson and others are realising that that earlier kind of new atheistic phase was just too literal when it comes to knowledge and truth. Um, and it just feels a bit empty and even a bit noddy now, you know, they want more and they know that life has got a kind of felt richness as well as a, um, an analytical richness um, that, that reason and intelligence are about what you can absorb as w- as much as what you can sort of pod and p- poke. Perception again, it's such light and, um, He gets drawn to the light all the time, Uh, you know, and what you can see is as much um, how you interpret what you see as much as just sort of putting it into a test tube and measuring it. Yeah. So this this whole area of Mm. participation and truth is really opening up now and and figures in the public that people get drawn to. They they sense it. That's why they watch all these blogs and YouTubes and things.
0: Well, thank you for producing this book. As I say, the, the 700th anniversary, I think it's literally just passed. I think it's around the 13th or 14th of September um, that, that marks the 700th anniversary of, of Dante's death. Um, uh, what what sort of things uh, have, are you seeing kind of come out to sort of mark this special occasion, apart from obviously the publication of your own very fine book, Mark?
2: Well, there's um, in, in Italy particularly, there's huge celebrations. Um, Dante is the Italian Shakespeare. Um, I mean, another part of his legacy was that he really makes modern Italian. Um, there've been a whole bunch of different dialects around Italy before Dante, but he kind of brings it all together in his um, aftermath. Um, and so he's absolutely seminal figure in Italy, um, but even um, in other parts of the world, um, there's kind of fans like me giving talks and um, there's an exhibition um, I know at the Dante Society in London, for example. Um, and um, I think that, um, you know, with luck, perhaps because of this particular moment we find ourselves in where we realise that these figures that came at the beginning of the modern period have got something which we can now revisit and make our own um, because we sense that so much of what life is offering has, feels like it's emptied out a bit. Um, and so returning to the kind of wellspring mm. of our own times, mm. if you like, which he lived in, um, it, it has great appeal, I hope mm. and think. Mm.
0: Yeah, I heard someone say the other day, uh, if you're reading more people who are alive than who are dead, then you, you need to change your reading list up. Um, we need to get back to to, to to people like Dante, who, you know, 700 years on, we're still talking about what he wrote and the way it's impacted culture. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey is the book to go and check out. Mark Vernon is the author. And I'll make sure there's a link from today's show as well. But thanks for being my guest today, Mark.
2: Thank you very much. It's a delight to talk about.
0: Thanks for being with us here on The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Do make sure to check in again same time next week when we'll be talking to more Christians in all walks of faith and life. And do make sure to check out our sister magazine, Premier Christianity, where you can find a free sample copy at their website, premierchristianity.com forward slash See you next time.